Good evening, everybody. I was uh, looking out on the room tonight and realized I may have scared everybody away last week. And when I came in, I couldn't see my wife. And I thought, I, not even my wife will come anymore on Sunday nights. And then I just got a text right now, and I'm going to read it to you. We got here a little bit ago in back. All right, thanks, honey. I'm glad. I'm <laughs> She's going to kill me because I read that text. I'm just playing. I'm kidding. Let me pray for us as we begin tonight. Father, we thank you so much for allowing us to gather here in this place this evening. Father, I pray that you would be with us as we open this great book, Lord. I, I pray, Lord, that we would be able to focus on what you're saying to us through it, Father. And I pray that uh, you would get underneath uh, our lowest point and hold us up, Father. That you would reveal uh, our hearts and our minds that we might uh, come running to you, Lord, for refuge, which you have promised and always will provide. And so, Father, please help us focus tonight. Help us think. Watch over us, Father, I pray and ask in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. <clears throat> in the first two chapters, we're introduced to the mystery of God and the misery of a very righteous man named Job. Uh, from chapters 3 to 37, which again, I, I, we, we won't do a chapter a week, so the, the, the series won't go that long. I'm not exactly sure how it will break down when it's all said and done, but our focus will be the search for an answer in 3 through 37 through the reflections of Job and the dialogue between Job and his three friends, including at the end an interruption, which is, you'll see when we get there, it's almost like comic relief, an interruption from a recent seminary graduate named Elihu. Uh, I'm glad you came back this week. I know last week was heavy. I don't want you to think every sermon from Job will be like that first one. But I also don't want us to think that we're allowed or need to glide right over the book. We, we aren't meant to. And if we do that, we'll miss what God has for us in its pages. From here, it, it's 35 chapters of agonizing soul-searching for Job before God so much as lifts a finger to begin comforting him in his losses. That does not mean 35 agonizing sermons. It's just where we are. But it does mean we have a lot to wrestle with here. But that's all right. This is West Virginia. All right? We're tough. Remember, I'm, I'm, you, you have coal mines and you have steel mills and you have floods. Don't chicken out on me with Job. We're tough here. We're tough. All right? So much of our anguish in suffering comes from the fact that we can't do anything to control what's happening to us, can we? That's a horrible feeling. That helplessness might be the very soul of suffering. It might be what Mike Mason calls the terrifying impotence. This is the sense we get from Job as we head into chapter 3, that Job has nowhere to go at this point. Job can't do anything. But through Job, we're going to understand the fact that it's all right to be a human being, if you will. Job finally broke under the weight of his suffering, and he cursed the day of his birth asking God why he wouldn't just let him die. So let's look to the text. I'm going to begin in verse 11 of chapter 2. <clears throat> now when Job's three friends heard of all this evil that had come upon him, 
They came each from his own place, Eliphaz the Temanite, Bildad the Shuhite, and Zophar the Namathite. They made an appointment together to come to show him sympathy and comfort him. And when they saw him from a distance, they did not recognize him, and they raised their voices and wept. And they tore their robes and sprinkled dust on their heads toward heaven. And they sat with him on the ground seven days and seven nights, and no one spoke a word to him, for they saw that his suffering was very great. We've learned that people of faith can and do experience terrible afflictions according to the will of God through no fault of their own. We know that because the writer revealed to us what happened in heaven that brought about all of Job's suffering. We must remember as we go through this book, Job had no idea why he was suffering. None whatsoever. No revelation from God. No explanation. And we will all go through suffering like that, where we don't have any answers for the great questions of why. After the conflict with his wife, he spent seven days and nights weeping with his friends who saw just how great his suffering was. That's the end of of anything good from these friends, by the way. So we want to enjoy it. Because from there on out, they're just horrible. But here, it says something. They sat with him for seven days and seven nights, weeping because they saw how great his suffering was. Now let me read chapter 3 to you. After this, Job opened his mouth and cursed the day of his birth. And Job said, Let the day perish on which I was born, and the night that said, A man is conceived. Let that day be darkness. May God above not seek it, nor light shine upon it. Let gloom and deep darkness claim it. Let let clouds dwell upon it. Let the blackness of the day terrify it. That night, let thick darkness seize it. Let it not rejoice among the days of the year. Let it not come into the number of the months. Behold, let that night be barren. Let no joyful cry enter it. Let those who curse it Let those cursed who curse the day, who are ready to rouse up Leviathan. Let the stars of its dawn be dark. Let it hope for light, but have none, nor see the eyelids of the morning, because it did not shut the doors of my mother's womb, nor hide trouble from my eyes. Why did I not die at birth, come out from the womb and expire? Why did the knees receive me, or why the breasts that I should nurse? For then I would have lain down and been quiet. I would have slept. Then I would have been at rest with kings and counselors of the earth who rebuilt ruins for themselves, or with princes who had gold, who filled their houses with silver? Or why was I not as a hidden stillborn child, as as infants who never see the light? There the wicked cease from troubling, and there the weary are at rest. There the prisoners are at ease together. They hear not the voice of the taskmaster. The small and the great are there, and the slave is free from his master. Why is light given to him who is in misery, and life to the bitter in soul? who long for death but it comes not, and dig for it more than for hidden treasures, who rejoice exceedingly and are glad when they find the grave. Why is light given to a man whose way is hidden, whom God has hedged in? Don't forget that line. For my sighing comes instead of my bread, and my groanings are poured out like water. For the thing that I fear comes upon me, and what I dread befalls me. I am not at ease, nor am I quiet. I have no rest, but trouble comes. This is the Word of God. Until we, From here on until we reach chapter 38, we leave behind the divine perspective of the first two chapters. And we're left exclusively with the limited human perspective of Job and his three friends. And so after seven days of silence now, 
the dam finally bursts and we hold our breath. Will Job curse God now? Right? This was the whole point of Satan's crushing of Job, to get him to curse God. Is it about to happen? Will he finally prove Job or prove Satan right? How long and under how much can a man really hang on? Now it's interesting, the Hebrew word there at the end of chapter 3 for sighing and groaning, it's one word. It's sha'aga or sha'aga and is used elsewhere in the Bible to express, every time it's used, gut-wrenching howls of pain, anxiety and grief. Jonah is not whimpering silently. Jonah is screaming these things. It's undignified, so to speak. But still, still Job does not curse God. Interestingly, Job curses himself. He curses himself. Specifically, he curses the day of his birth from verses 3 to 9. Right? You saw that. The phrases just accumulate in this poem. He calls on what may have been a mythological sea creature in his time, Leviathan. If someone unleashed Leviathan against the night of his birth, maybe that night would be barren after all. Maybe he wouldn't have been born. All his why questions wish for the same thing. In 3, 11, and 12, why didn't I die at birth? 3, 16, why wasn't I just stillborn? 3, 20, and 23, why was life even given to me? He's saying I could be sleeping with the mighty in verses 18 and 19, but instead I'm sitting in the ash heap. And so Job just calls up every image he can think of that describes what he knew of death that would make it appear a better option for him. Notice Job's theology. Remember, we are very early on here. In history, there's no Bible, there are no scriptures, there's no priesthood, none of those things. Death in Job's day was either total annihilation or worse. It was some kind of unconscious rest. There's no heaven or hell in any of Job's descriptions. We want to see that. That's why he wants to die. He's saying, just blot me out. Take me away. Void out my existence. Notice how horrible this, this is. What Satan originally accused God of in chapter 1, verse 10, remember that Job worships him only because God has put a hedge around him and his house and all that he has on every side. Job interprets the hedge God has put around him in verse 23 to be like a prison whose walls are so high he can't escape. That's how Job sees the hedge God has built around him. He wants out of his life. He wants out of the prison, but he can't get out. The wall is too high. In the face of that level of pain and suffering, to not have ever existed at all sounds much better. And yet, in the midst of all this, in the midst of his gut-wrenching howls, not only does Job never curse God, Job never even raises the possibility, if you'll notice, of the only other viable option since he can't undo the day of his birth. Which would be what? If this is how he felt, what would be the only other option? If he can't reverse being born, to kill himself. Suicide. That's the natural next step if this is really how he feels, that he wants to die. But he doesn't even bring it up. It doesn't even enter his groanings. He never even hints at it. Now, Job is... This is not simply the ache to cease existing. That's one thing. This is the genuine wish that he had never existed at all. And when you read Job 3, it doesn't look like faith, does it? You would never look at that and and, and say that there's faith there, at least not on the surface. But I think, 
again, because he's crying out to have his existence voided, that he would never have been born, I think the reason that killing himself isn't an option for Job, and then the reason Job doesn't curse God here, is because in chapter 3, Job is expressing what we will see as remarkably genuine and deep faith. What is this here? This is an argument with God. Why? Because God is the only one that can answer these questions. Right? Job says, I wish I had never been born. Instead, I'm cursed to know that there is a God who is in control of everything and He has unlimited power, but He won't appear and explain this to me. You hear what's behind that? Behind that is faith. Behind that is an amazing belief in in the bigness and the greatness of God. Job is crying out in gut-wrenching pain and sorrow. But one of the clearest impressions we get as we read through all of Job's speeches is that Job has not lost it. Job has not snapped. Job knows exactly what he is saying. I think that's why it comes to us in the form of such beautiful poetry. The amount of thought and wisdom in what Job says is staggering for a man in his condition. And and he obviously means every word of it. Job isn't on the brink of insanity here. He's facing the ordeal with his eyes wide open, beloved. Suffering reveals the inside. And there is a point where any man is simply, he, he just throws in the towel. Right? That, that's the, there's a point like that for everyone. That doesn't mean a person has abandoned their faith necessarily. Maybe it just means they become so sick and tired of trying to push through it or of trying to put a good face on, especially when what they're facing doesn't have anything good about it at all. Right? When Job goes to bed, he's going to wake up again, and it's all going to hit him back in the face again. Even our Lord Jesus, beloved, would sometimes express some form of this kind of frustration, yet he was without sin. So it isn't automatically sinful to do this. Jesus would groan in his spirit. Deep down, it says in Mark 8. In John 11, I I, I know we want to see that as Jesus weeping because Lazarus is dead, but that's not what his groaning there is in the Greek. Jesus is so troubled in his spirit that his insides are groaning at their unbelief, at their lack of belief in him as the one that would heal their souls and raise the dead. In Matthew 17, 17, do you remember Jesus? Oh, faithless and twisted generation, how long am I to bear with you? How long am I going to have to put up with you? That's Jesus talking, and he's not sinning. Job is a man of unmatched integrity. As we go through this book, we, we, we have to keep in mind God's verdict on him to the devil, which, remember, chapters 1 and 2, you and I are let in on that. God wants us to see his verdict of Job. He speaks plainly. He doesn't play games or hide what he is thinking. Job is not afraid to speak the truth. One of the things I think Job is telling us is that that kind of honesty and authenticity about what is inside is actually an invaluable mark of Christian virtue. Beloved, we we need to understand as chapter 3 opens that Job's trials have not ended. They've not ended. An entirely new one has now engulfed him. Depression. That's what we're going to see. Despair. Deep mental and spiritual trauma on the inside. And, and I, I don't know where it came from, but 
sometimes when I say the church in this regard, I don't really mean like I'm just talking about this church. I think the church maybe maybe in America might need to come out of the dark ages about depression and mental illness. These are real things. I know you can't take a blood test and, and put it and say, okay, they have... No, these are real things. And, and, and mental illness is its own kind of brutality. And I know there are levels, right? I know there are levels, and but it's its, its own kind of darkness because you, you sometimes you can't see it. And to the watching person, the whole result is like, just, just snap out of it. Like, what... What's wrong with you? If you could do that, you wouldn't, that would mean you don't have that. So it, it, it's just its own kind of isolation sometimes. I, I, I totally understand that sometimes people are just down and they mistake it for, for clinical depression or maybe they're just wallowing in self-pity. I totally understand that. But beloved, I read that telling a person struggling with genuine, genuine depression, which is a blackness in your mind that will not go away. And I read that telling a person struggling with genuine depression is like to just snap out of it and cheer themselves up is like telling a person with no arms to punch themselves until their arms grow back. It's exactly what it's like. If, if you saw somebody that didn't have legs, you wouldn't think, hey, you need to learn how to walk. Right? They don't have legs. So when it comes to mental illness, it's, it's like our response, like, like the fall couldn't have affected the brain. Right? And so we just think, you, you gotta quit that. You gotta get past that. It's not that easy. And Job in chapter three and following is just, is just on this downward spiral as we watch him. It's, it's, it's a tragedy is what it is. But, but again, you, you, you wouldn't tell somebody with no legs, look, now eventually you're going to need to walk. And I, and I don't know why so often we look at those struggling with mental issues and think we need to get them past that. You know, We need to get them to what God really has for them. We'll see next week in chapter 4, and I think this is crucial to Job, that the devil is still attacking Job. Very cruelly. Since he couldn't get Job to fall, maybe his three close friends can. I think that's the devil's strategy. I think we'll see that in the text. We have to see Job's psychological trauma, if we want to call it that, as inseparably linked to his other trials. This this is just one more assault on his faith. Only the battleground of the devil's assault on Job has changed. It's gone from the outside to the inside. And beloved, notice the content of the book of Job. We got two chapters on what he dealt with from the outside. We get like 35 on his struggle through the inside. That says something. If Job is praying here in chapter 3, and there's, there's good reason to think that he is, it's good to be reminded that such a dark outpouring of the soul is biblical. Right? That prayer doesn't have to, it's not always going to be upbeat and optimistic. The majority of the Psalms are laments. Now, I wonder why that is, that the majority of them are laments, because I think that's the, the weight of the human experience is on the struggle side. Beloved, we're not always going to rise from our knees full of encouragement and hope or even clarity. Yes, that those times will come, and praise God for those times. We will experience those times, but that's not always how it's going to be. 
the beauty of this passage is in the fact that underneath all of this despair, I do think there's hope here. I really do. I think there's genuine hope underneath of Job. I, I, I know it doesn't look like it. But I don't think I'm making it up. Job's despair is clinging to the hope here that God will answer. Or at the very least, if there is an answer, only the God Job worships in the midst of his despair can provide it. I think that's here. I think that's why Job is going straight to God with it. I think that's what he's doing, crying out. Think about this. Think about this for a minute. Because this this is amazing about this book. Throughout even what becomes the bitterness of Job's complaints, it will come. It's strange that we don't too often hear Job complaining about the things we think he would be complaining about. Right? That's important. He, Job doesn't ask, off the top of my head, how could you take my kids from me? He doesn't say that. He doesn't ask, why has my wife turned against me? Job doesn't say that. He doesn't complain to God about losing his estate, his servants, his money, etc. What does Job so often complain about? What is the overall theme to Job's groaning? Beloved, it's that he has lost his spiritual estate. The the, the depth of what he's struggling with is that there's this issue he feels between him and God and he can't get answers for it. Now we normally might think in suffering that the way we hold on, and this is good and right, I want to stress that, but we might think that the way we hold on is to think, I can handle losing everything because I know that I would have the peace of God with me in it all. That is true and it is good and it is right, beloved. That that underlying sense of peace, though, is precisely what Job feels has been taken from him. So it's, it's down at a level even beneath that. That's what makes Job's suffering so stark. That's what he identifies again and again in his groaning as the greatest of tragedies, the real source of his anguish. I think we know enough about Job to know that Job... It, if he could understand in some sense what he was going through, if he had some answers, Job would be the first guy on earth to say, yes, I've lost everything, but I have this sense of peace. I know that God is with me. Job's struggling is so deep and so awful, he can't even get to that. He's below that normal place. We know from God's account of Job that he had a firm grasp on the principle anyway, laid out in a text like Isaiah thirty-two seventeen: The fruit of righteousness will be peace. The effect of righteousness will be quietness and confidence forever. Job knew that he was a righteous man. So where were the peace and confidence that should have been rightfully his? That may be what he's thinking. Job's hope is that God has to be true to his word, though. We're going to see that again and again. Job teaches us that there are times when spiritual hope takes the form of despair. When a person reaches the point where they feel so abandoned that they're ready to live with the lack of peace in the moment, in the immediate moment, because in that they're holding out for something deeper that they don't know about and can't see that must be coming for them. That, that, that may not look like hope, but that's what it is. It's hope. And, and, and I know that doesn't sound like normal, at least the, 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 the Christianity we get in books and, and things like that does it. It, it, it doesn't. I, I know that. We automatically think, yeah, but, but you're supposed to have joy and there's supposed to be a place beyond that. And That's probably why, even though this book is God's word to us as it is, 
Job can really make us feel so uncomfortable and displaced when we go through it. Right? It, just, it just doesn't feel Christian to read these things. But maybe that's because we've been sold a rotten bill of goods. This is the, this is the burden of my heart all the time for us, beloved. And I don't mean I'm up here. And so this is my burden for all you poor folks down there. That's not what I mean. I mean it's something that weighs on my heart in me as much as it is a concern for you. I know that these things can be confusing at best for those of us that might have naturally more sanguine personalities or just do better in struggles than other people. I readily admit that. We're different, right? All of us are different. And I know that so many of us just think that we're supposed to have a certain level of joy because we're Christians. Beloved, I am not denying that. I'm not denying that we should have deep, real joy that does at times affect our outside. But generally speaking, I preach for the ones who just can't get there most of the time. Like me. You know, that's, that's where I struggle. I just do. Always have. Since I was a little boy. You, you, you see it. You know what you're supposed to feel. And you can't get there. Now, I haven't cornered the market on anything. Not by any means. But I've pastored long enough to know, I think, that I, that's, I'm not projecting my own struggles onto the congregation. Most of the people I meet, and that's not hyperbole, most of the people I meet, almost without exception, if I have the chance to really get to know them, are really struggling with their faith underneath the surface. They really are. Most people really are. Most people really wonder if God even actually loves them. I'm not making that up. Or they wonder if they've done good enough. You know, They feel that. Have I done good enough that God accepts me? And they're struggling with their assurance all the time. And, and, and then maybe they're, li- they're in a, a loveless marriage or a difficult work situation. And, and those, those things compound to the point where you're just doing your best to make it through the day without crumbling. There are people all the time, most people are somewhere on that spectrum between I'm okay and I'm, I'm going to die. I think that, that's where most, most people are living. It's just a matter of when they're going to go through the worst and what they might be going through. And again, not everyone is like that. I understand that. But most of us are, and most of the time, we aren't talking to them. And I think Job is talking to them. We feel the sense that all is not well. And it hits us right where our assurance should be. Beloved, that is a desert of the soul. It's brutal. And we, we maybe, maybe there's been this unintentionally created kind of Christian culture where the last thing you want is to be known. For people to be aware of what you really struggle with. The last thing that you want is for people to know what your home is really like what your marriage is really like, what really bothers you, what it really is that keeps you up at night, what sins you really struggle with, right? 
we can admit the respectable ones all day. Or we just cover it all. Well, nobody's perfect. Yeah. Nobody's even close. Like, you're not saying anything. Nobody's perfect. Yeah, no kidding. Nobody's good. Like, I just want to be crystal clear about something. Just because we're going through Job. I believe in my heart that my calling to pastoral ministry is to go after that that fear in people to be known and to see it dead and in the grave. I, I, I want I want to have a Christian culture where we're real with each other and all the mess that comes from that. I think we can handle it. I, I don't want us to just say we believe the gospel as a statement about where we're going when we die. When we die, although praise God, it is that. I want us to know the peace that comes from knowing Jesus loves you right now, and He loves you as you are. That's different. I don't mean He smiles at our sin. He doesn't. But I do mean that He did die for our sins, and the wrath against you for your sin has been removed because we believed on Jesus Christ. That is also true. I don't want people to be so worried about whether or not God has truly accepted them because they don't make the grade of this standard that either has been set up for them or that they heap on themselves. I don't want you thinking, yes, I'm saved. I believe that, but does God actually love me? Is God pleased that I'm in His house? And one of the most sinister schemes of the enemy is to burden us down in the weaknesses we struggle so much to overcome as though there's some kind of evidence that God just isn't that pleased with us and therefore we have to do better. I preach so that that thought would go burn in hell where it belongs. There are times then that my preaching is probably going to seem like overkill. And I'm sure sometimes it will be. But the fact remains when I think about this, I'm far too selfish a man to believe that this burden for other people comes from inside of me. Like it's just who I am. It is not who I am. I don't have the capacity in my flesh to care for the other people like I'm supposed to. I don't. And so I do believe this burden that drives my preaching is from the Lord. I, I, I have to believe that, right? And I want you to know, believer in Christ, you are accepted. God accepts you, and He doesn't just love you. He likes you. He likes you. He's glad you're in the house. You are precisely why He left the 99. And He rejoiced to find you. Don't forget that. And so, if someone's admission, if, if someone's admission that they are suffering or their weakness is automatically and quickly interpreted or diagnosed as just a lack of faith, honesty will be the first casualty in a culture like that. Who wants to be identified or known as the faithless one? The one that isn't just quite there, right? So we can't be honest. We talked about this a little bit last week. And the label of of faithlessness is given so quickly in struggles. You look at Job, oh, he's lost his faith. No, 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 no. Or, or the, the diagnosis is, yeah, you know what? You, you just need more faith. 
that's just too simple a solution. It just doesn't cover it. We'll leave suffering people lonelier than they were before. If it's just always that pat, well, you know, you just need to believe. You just Here's the verse. Believe that verse. Yeah. I'm here. I know that verse. <laughs> I can't believe it. That's why I need, your, I, I need your help, brother or sister, right? I know that verse. I can't believe it right now. Help me. Behind every barrier to honesty and authenticity is, is I think, a radically unbiblical and deep-seated misconception about what it means to be a believer. Contrary to popular belief, Christianity is not basically about, or, or is not about basically good people getting even better. It's not what it's about. If it's anything like that formula, it's much more about bad people coping with their failure to be good. And, and I don't want to hear that that's some type of threat against your self-esteem or our self-esteem or it's too negative. We should have a more positive outlook. The Bible does not have an Oprah Winfrey level of optimism about the human condition. Right? It, it's not a throwaway theological platitude when Paul calls himself at the end of his life, when he was from the outside at his best, when he calls himself the chief of sinners. Beloved, that's genuinely what Paul believed about himself. But it wasn't a source of despair for him. It was his very hope. Because the further he got along, he realized, I'm the kind of wretch that Jesus came to save. That's what got more and more real to Paul. Oh, Jesus came to save wretches, and I'm the worst wretch, so he came to save me. It didn't cause him to wallow in self-pity. That's never the goal. That's never healthy. But, But a realistic sense of who we are in light of Christ is like, Medicine for the soul. There's something so relieving about knowing how wretched and helpless you really are when you see yourself through the light of the gospel and not through self-pity or self-absorption. That's never the goal. How did the much, so much of the focus of modern Christianity become so obsessed with the happiness and moral performance of the Christian rather than the object of our faith, Christ himself? How did the focus get switched? And you can't tell me the enemy isn't behind that. I think we may struggle, if we're struggling, to handle a book like Job because we all know deep down that suffering cuts through the notions we want to believe about ourselves, right? And our ability or our obsession to get better. But, beloved, we need Job as it is because Job leads us straight to the gospel. It's just a straight shot, straight to hope. It's just unnerving because Job's straight shot to hope comes through despair. And sometimes, many times, that is the journey we'll need to take to come back to a place of rest. When you read that first chapter of his groaning to God, we might be tempted to think like Job's wife did or Job's friends do. We may want to pass judgment on him. We're inclined to doubt his righteousness at this point. Oh, he's, you know, he's gone off the deep end now. How can he say such things? How can he voice these things out loud? I'm not entirely sure that the thoughts of Job here are all that different from many of our innermost thoughts, if we were honest. Right? I mean, if, if, and if that's the case, maybe the difference between Job and us here is that Job actually says them out loud. 
I do think questions like some of those Job raises can gnaw away at our minds sometimes. What I want to take from that, or what I hope we can take from that, is that being a believer does not stop that or prohibit that. It doesn't. Being a believer in God necessarily implies that we'll grapple in the dark with who we really are and how we really think. That's part of what it means to be a believer. Job's despair, his questioning, is Godward. He's acknowledging God, even if he's barely hanging on. And he's the only one in the book that does it correctly. That's God's verdict at the end of Job. That's very important. That You have God showing up before all of this and after all of this to validate this man. That's huge for us. Even when Job is barely hanging on, he goes to God every time. And beloved, could it be, could it be that many of us have never really come to grips with the fact that we're actually evil at our core? Could it be that we don't see ourselves as badly as the Bible paints us without Christ? I'm not denying your salvation. That's not what I mean. My goodness. I'm saying it's possible that we've never really come to grips with who we really are in our flesh. And I'm also saying that what Job will show us is that if we haven't done that, if we aren't coming to grips with it, so much of our faith just gets assumed. doesn't mean faith isn't there, but some of us are fortunate enough, by God's grace, to be raised in churches and homes that are Christians, so our whole lives have had this element of Christianity to them, so we've never really had to wrestle with whether or not we actually believe these things. Or, or that, that you, you just you kind of assume that, that, yes, I'm a sinner, and so I trust in Him. And yes, but do you know what it means to be a rebel against God in your heart? Do we know what it means to be a sinner? Because normally we, we, we think... We consider our sinfulness based on what sins we actually commit, right? Let's just, let's just be honest. You know, I'm, I, I'm a sinner, but like I'm not, you know. And it's, it's, it's I just God doesn't see it that way. So it's tough. Yeah, it's, 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 it's tough. If, if we haven't done that, if we don't know as much as we can, again, about ourselves on the inside, we aren't prepared for those times when faith in God is like being awake during open-heart surgery. We'll run from it. We'll run from knowing who we really are. We'll fear it. We'll fear it. And we'll fear that if God really sees who we really are, like we've successfully hidden who we really are from Him, and if, if, if our hearts get revealed... If other people know, or if God knows who we really are on the inside, then maybe even God will run away. We like to think that God saved us from the person we're comfortable with Him knowing about. Beloved, God sees us infinitely better than we see ourselves. And you have to know this. That horrible you that nobody else knows about is the you that Jesus died for by name on Calvary. It's not the version of yourself that you can deal with being bad that He died for. He died for the you you don't want anybody to know about and would be terrified if they found out about. 
That's the one. That, that, that's the one that Jesus swept the house for in Luke 15 and lit the lamp for and came running to meet in Luke 15. That's the one. That's the one. The tension in suffering comes largely because we have that strange privilege of being wide awake as God continues to fashion us. As Mike, Mike Mason says again, to watch wide-eyed as his very own fingers work within our hearts. Yes, that can be painful. There's no anesthetic for that kind of surgery. Except for trust, maybe. Trust of the surgeon. But trust doesn't knock us out. In the stabbing pain of surgery, trust cries out. It's, it's mistrust and fear and suspicion that stay quiet. Trust cries out. That's, that's, that's good. Right? Trust, trust, when you're crying out, you're going back to God with God's words, beloved. You're admitting you believe those things. You just can't understand why He's not acting on them. Or at least it doesn't seem like He is in the moment. That's not a lack of faith. That's where faith is actually real. Job is crying out in trust, in the belief that an answer is there and God has it. Maybe you and I would never say out loud, that we curse the day of our birth and wish we had never been born. Maybe none of us will express it by standing on the bridge in the snow with a bloody lip like George Bailey, right? The best movies of all time. But beloved, every time we grumble, right? This is the state of the human condition. Every time we grumble, every time we speak evil of someone else because we're angry, are we not in effect ruining the day of our birth that we exist in this world? That God is so holy. You understand the predicament we're in when we're sitting in traffic, mad as a hornet, because how, how could this happen? I'm so late. I'm so mad. You cut me off. How could there be construction? You are saying, God, you can't run this world. I'm stuck in traffic again. Where are you? That's what's going on. That's what's going on. You're not doing a good job. Are we not often openly critical of God and where God has placed us and how He's directing our lives? And the the amazing thing in Job is that our it doesn't even have to be suffering on the scale of Job. Right? It's a mirror. We often lash out like this. How could this be when we're late for something because we're too irresponsible to start getting ready on time? But then when we get out there and, and we're stuck in the lane, how could this happen? Uh, you know, I just... I remember one time, this is no joke. I had a Mazda 323. It was like a little moon pod type thing. And uh, I was really starting to get a series about these discipleship training classes at our church. They were at 6 p.m., First Baptist Church of Heath. And I noticed, in retrospect, how... Poorly, I took care of my car. And I knew that I was low on gas. And I ran out of gas on the way to Bible study, on the way to discipleship training. And I, tra- and I was sitting on Route 16 in Newark as it merges with 79. And I said out loud, God, I am trying to go to Bible study. How could you let me run out of gas? <laughs> there it is. There it is. I'm... There it is, right? 
our reactions may betray this ongoing, underlying resentment over the fact that we were ever created, that we were ever expected to live in such a hard and angering world. That's going to come. That's going to come. What's amazing is how much it actually took Job to get there. That's that's, That's why God is telling us how righteous he is, so that we see Job properly. We should be astounded that it took until now for him to, for the floodgates to open, right? I don't know how much time passed in chapters 1 and 2. I don't. But the very fact that the first two responses were so Godward is, is something we need to see in Job because th- th- that, that's a mirror for us and that mirror points us to Christ. We really do need a Savior. That's what Job is doing. In verse 23, when Job ironically cries out that God has hedged him in, in this life that he can't escape. When Satan called the very same thing a hedge of protection that God had built around Job, what are we seeing there? Why does Satan see it for what it is, and Job sees it as this wall he can't get over? Beloved, sometimes God's closest protection of us can look like a wall in the way. A wall of darkness and difficulty and pain. But beloved, here's the thing. What if our suffering guards our faith like nothing else can? What if it's doing something for us that we cannot do for ourselves? What if it's forcing us to stay fixed on God as our only hope? What if it's one of the deepest evidences of God's presence in your life, your suffering? One of the surest signs that you're His child. What if the safest place to be sometimes is in trouble? If what is happening to us has come by God's permission, and when does it not, then no matter what it is, it might be the safest place to be in the world. And how we wrestle there then is not a sign of God's absence, but is evidence that He really is our only hope. Because we can't go anywhere else. Maybe our loudest screams at God are our truest expressions of faith. There may be a lot more, they, those cries might be a lot more real and God-centered than us trying to smile all the time so that people think all is well. Beloved Charles Spurgeon, who suffered from horrible depression, just, there's a book, I, I would commend it to you with all of my heart, called Spurgeon's Sorrows by Zach Eswine. It's a phenomenal book. But he said, all of his life, just, Racked by horrible depression. He said, in the midst of it, I have learned to kiss the wave that throws me against the rock of ages. There it is. You hear it. There it is. There's faith. There's faith. I don't know where you are, but you are there somewhere. Come and help me. Real faith, then, is not the ability to always see God but to keep believing no matter what that he always sees us. Job is sitting in the ashes tonight as some or many of us might be or maybe were or maybe have been for a long time. Where is our hope tonight? Our hope is also God's word. Our hope is Psalm 113.7. He raises the poor from the dust and lifts the needy from the ash heap. That's what he does.
even though we want to take Job as honestly and purely as the book has been written, don't forget tonight that you and I do live on this side of the cross. That doesn't mean the venom of suffering is any less potent than it was to Job. It just means that that more clarifying word that Job is crying out for has been spoken to you and I. It is finished. Jesus brings us into final rest from suffering by suffering for us. What we should have suffered but won't. At the cross then, God paid Job back in a sense, even though he didn't owe Job anything. His son came and paid the price for Job's struggle to see God in the midst of his suffering. That's what he's done for us. That's what he's done for us. When you think of that then, realize, when you think of of those things needing to be washed by the blood of Christ, ponder for just a little while how much it is that Jesus died for, for you. All of it, everything imperfect about you. He died for it. He bled for it. He covered it. It's finished, beloved. That when you feel that I should be, yes, I readily admit, yes, in light of what God has done, we should be here. But you know what? Sometimes it just isn't working. Jesus died for that gap, beloved. Or there's no hope. There's no hope. We close tonight with the words of Romans 11, 33-36. When Paul was in a situation a lot like Job's, in the sense that God's work had brought Paul to the end of himself. The end of his ability to understand. Which is why we get that beautiful explosion in Romans 11. Oh, the depth of the riches and the wisdom and the knowledge of God. How unsearchable are His judgments. How inscrutable are His ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord so as to become His counselor? Who has ever given Him a gift that He should be repaid? For from Him and through Him and to Him are all things. To Him be glory forever. Amen. Now, in that, you hear some of the same things you hear in Job. His ways are without number, they say. Who can? It's Job where it says, who has given him a gift that he should be repaid. Paul draws on that mystery, the mystery of God, but at the opposite end of the spectrum. Rather than being in the darkness of suffering where there are no answers, Paul is in another place where it's, where it's readily obvious that God is just as incomprehensible salvation. That's what's happening at the end of Romans 11. He's just outlined for 11 straight chapters the beauty of salvation by grace through faith alone, justification by grace through faith apart from works, and the plan of God that's been running through history through Israel and for the Gentiles. And he just says at the end of it, oh, the depth, like I can't understand it, I can't fathom it. Beloved, that's where the cries of Job find their home. We're not ever going to pass from incomprehensible to comprehensible. We're going to pass from incomprehensible because of suffering to incomprehensible because of deep-rooted, indestructible joy and hope. And the way that we get there is through the gospel. Not by telling ourselves that we should be better. Yes, you should, but we're not. And that isn't quitting. That isn't throwing in the towel. It's faith, beloved, to say, I am not where I should be, but Christ has me. And He's going to take me to that place. We will be like Him when we see Him as He is. Not before. Not before. 
In light of Jesus, there's still mystery and a lack of understanding and comprehension in Paul, but in light of Jesus Christ and the redemption Job so deeply longed for, now actually being purchased, Job didn't have a cross to look back to. He didn't even know that's what he was looking forward to. But now for what he longed for, being actually purchased and realized, the mystery of God. Isn't this beautiful? That in Christ, the incomprehensible mystery of God becomes the foundation of eternal hope. You see how in Jesus, everything is made new. All of it. All of it. Man, He loves you. He loves you. Real faith is not the ability to perfectly see or understand God and what He's doing and how it all works together for good, and it does. Real faith is believing, even when those things are hidden, that God is doing those things. That God always sees us. That God will always be faithful to His promises for us. That's faith, even when it looks exactly like despair. He lifts the needy from the ash heap, beloved. He will not leave. He will not forsake. He will not stay silent forever. And we will behold this God. We will see Him with our eyes. It will all come home. We'll see Him. Let me pray for us. We're going to sing this last song together. I'll be here down front if you need to pray. Father, I thank You so much for Your Son, Jesus Christ. I thank You for the truth of Your Word. And God, how I pray tonight that you, you, you would sustain us in our struggling. Father, I, I know everybody in here is at a different level. And so for some of us right now, this all may, maybe it just seems unnecessary. But Father, it, this is in your word. This is in your word. And so Lord, hold us all close together tonight. May the stronger ones right now be there for the weaker ones. Because one day the, the positions will probably switch. But Father, at the end of all things, you'll be there. You'll be there. And you'll wipe away every tear. And mourning and crying and doubt will be no more. We'll have sight. This is what Christ has bought for us. And I pray and ask these things in his name. Amen.